Hi, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of the Elephant in the Room podcast. Today, y'all will be getting a preview of what we have planned heading into the big 2022 midterm elections this November. I plan to speak with fellow Georgetown conservatives and potentially surprise guests from other D.C. universities to explore the key races to watch from their home states. For this episode, we will be leaving the shores of the mainland U.S. and heading to the Aloha State. You'll be hearing from two Hawaiian students here at Georgetown to give their in-depth analysis of their state's political past, present, and future. With my first guest, Alyssa Harai, we will be discussing former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard and her ascent to fame on the right over the past few years, despite being a Democrat. Secondly, I'll be speaking with a close friend of mine, John Vieira, to dive into Hawaii's current political environment and where it could be heading. So without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Alyssa to the podcast. Alyssa, how are you doing? Thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Ian. Thank you for the invite. I'm really excited to be here today. Yeah, thanks again uh, so much for coming on. And, to t- and just before we get started, uh, I was shocked to hear the news of former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's assassination uh, on the 8th of July, a little... Uh, less than two weeks ago. Before we begin our discussion about former Congresswoman Gabbard, is there anything you'd like to share given your strong connections to Japan? Yeah, that was also very shocking news to me. That was the last thing I expected would happen, especially considering um, Japan's low crime rates and low um, gun violence rates. And I'm still very sad about the assassination. He was a conservative icon and Aside from all the things he did for Japan, I think that he really worked to strengthen U.S.-Japanese, the U.S.-Japanese alliance at a time when most other leaders didn't want to work with Trump. And I think Abe was one of the few leaders who really worked on a personal relationship with Trump, usually over golf. And um, I also want to point out the news bias when it comes to reporting Shinzo Abe's assassination. Um, the American left-wing media never fails to shock me because I remember NPR described Fidel Castro as like a prominent international figure. He inspired passion, blah, blah, blah. And when Shinzo Abe was assassinated, he was characterized as a divisive conservative. So very sad to see that kind of reporting. Yes. And I definitely share my condolences with the people of Japan and all that you're enduring. It's definitely tragic news that anybody expected to hear uh, that day. Let's move on to the heart of the conversation of this episode and talk about former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. Now, when was the first time you heard about Tulsi Gabbard and what was your initial impression of her? Yeah, the first time I heard about Tulsi was during the Democratic debate in 2020. And my first impression of her is that she's a person who doesn't kiss up to the party. And it was a good first impression for me. And would you say that was mainly because of her present vote on the first uh, impeachment of President Trump? Or was there a specific bill that really stood out to you as she's not a typical party line Democrat member of Congress? I think for me, it was the fact that Tulsi's always open to talking to people on the other side of the the political spectrum more than the kind of legislation that she put in place. I think her kind of open attitude and willingness to criticize her own party 
really caught my attention. Yeah, for sure. And you're definitely seeing more of that now that she's no longer in office and Joe Biden is is in the White House. Uh, But one of her most famous moments in the spotlight was, in fact, during her presidential campaign in 2020. And she was known for hanging around right till the very end, winning two delegates, I believe, from American Samoa. Uh, But one of her moments in the spotlight during the campaign was when she exposed then-Senator Kamala Harris's hypocrisy when it uh, related to marijuana legalization. Now that we know Joe Biden picked Kamala Harris to be his vice president, what do you think this attack represents? Do you see it in a new new lens? Do you think that represents Tulsi going after her party or standing up for her values? Yeah, that was definitely one of her most iconic moments. And I think it really represents Kamala's opportunism. And it shows that your loyalty to the party matters more than your accomplishments or your qualifications. Because, I mean, Tulsi is a very accomplished and qualified woman. But of course, if she's going to criticize established leaders in the party, like, you know, President Biden or um, Hillary Clinton, she's not of use to the Democrats. And on the other hand, we see someone like Kamala who criticized Biden as a racist in the uh, 2020 uh, presidential debate or the Democratic debate, but now she's suddenly his VP. So I'm I'm not really sure what is going on here. You could definitely attribute Kamala Harris's uh, opportunism to that is she went, she made lots of money for her campaign off of that attack of Joe Biden. And the fact that Tulsi Gabbard you could argue, in a sense, was defending Joe Biden uh, by going after Kamala Harris saying, you know, she likes to go after other people, but let's turn the, let's put the flame uh, under uh, under her record. Let's like, put the microscope microscope under her record and see what she did as attorney general of California, especially when it came to marijuana legalization. She put countless numbers of people in jail, and then she went on a Breakfast Club podcast and laughed about it. So I think that really shows her the frustration a lot of people and a lot of Americans have with Kamala Harris. And you're seeing that now in her tenure as vice president, where she laughs about questions about seeing the border, uh, laughing with the Polish president about the Ukrainian refugees uh, that have stemmed out of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I think that that just makes her look like a very foolish person who doesn't necessarily take these issues very seriously and it may not be her intention, but that's how it's coming across to voters and her, her approval rating is below 30%. So I think that that is a testament to how people are viewing her, not just uh, in Hawaii per se, but in the entire country. But yeah, she's definitely an unlikable character. And I mean, if even liberals don't like you, you're doing something wrong. Yeah. But sticking back to Tulsi, and she, of course, has drawn the ire of many Democrats in her own right, uh, but she has been in line with a lot of more populist conservatives when it comes to a number of issues, including the neoliberal, neoconservative war machine. Uh, She's against uh, endless wars. She supports keeping transgender women out of women's sports. In fact, she introduced a bill while she was in Congress with Republican Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma. And then even endorsed the parental rights and education bill in Florida, which has been dubbed by 
the Democrats and our opposition as the quote unquote, don't say gay bill. Uh, what impact do you think this has had for possible bipartisanship in the future, given you have Democrats supporting what, is, what are seen as such core conservative views on a lot of social issues? Yeah, definitely. This has a positive impact on bipartisanship efforts. I think Tulsi really focuses on the issues that bring people together rather than those that divide the country. I don't even think she's commented on Roe v. Wade recently. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think she said anything about abortion. She's mostly focusing on issues that the average American agrees on. Like most people support keeping transgender women out of women's sports. I've met a lot of people who are more moderate and left-leaning that agree with that. Yeah, and I think on the Republican side, you see a lot more uh, Republican members of Congress who support many liberal policy agendas, like you just saw recently, uh, over 10 Republican senators supported that gun control bill, um, that bipartisan gun control bill with Senator John Cornyn of Texas leading the negotiation of that bill. But you rarely see Democrats cross the floor and vote with conservatives on similar legislation. I mean, you do have certain exceptions, like talking about that same bipartisan uh, gun control bill, Senator John Tester of Montana, who's a Democrat, voted against that bill. Uh, That may be because Montana is a very conservative state, but you have senators like Joe Manchin, who's in West Virginia, very, very pro-Trump, very pro-Republican state, and he's still voting with his party. And so having Tulsi, in my view, really represents that breaking of the mold and presenting a more, the similar anti-establishment narrative that President Trump introduced to the Republican Party, but providing it from a more democratic lens, from a more left-wing or progressive stance, rather than purely towing the party line. And I think that says a lot about where politics is going and that that battle that we're seeing now between the establishment versus outsider candidates and Tulsi is very clearly aligning herself with those outsider candidates that are not afraid of criticizing institutions. But speaking of Tulsi Gabbard's past, she recently appeared in front of many traditionally conservative audiences, whether that be on Fox News, she's been interviewed by Sean Hannity, Uh, Tucker Carlson, Jesse Waters, or even giving an unprecedented speech at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference. Do you think that this means she'll eventually become a Republican or pursue her career further in conservative politics? Or do you think that she'll stay fit as a Democrat, criticizing her party from the more populist anti-establishment lens? Yeah, I don't think she will ever become a Republican because she is still liberal. And I don't think she can fit in in the Republican Party. I also think it would prove her point or it it would work against her because she wants to show that we can work across the aisle and bring the American people together. If she switches parties, then she kind of just proves that you have to switch parties if if you don't agree with the far left in the democratic party yeah that definitely uh, i definitely see your point there and her willingness to still maintain whenever she appears on fox news she still has that d next to her name it says tulsi gabbard and the d in brackets to always show that she's 
different than I would say a lot of Fox News guests. They normally bring in on Republicans all the time, whereas MSNBC, CNN bring on a lot of Democrats and token Republicans. Uh, do you think that she holds a similar view or similar space for the right, that she's the kind of the token Democrat that conservatives like to trot out to say you have major problems in your party? Or do you think she represents something different than that? I mean, I think it could be similar. And I feel like part of it is just that Fox is the only is the only platform she really has because obviously the more left-leaning um, media isn't going to give her a platform to speak against the policies that they support, which shouldn't be that way, but that's just how it is, I guess. Yeah, it is a shame to see media networks become so partisan. And I think maybe to shine some more light on why there's so much frustration on the right, and Alyssa, you can add in what, if whether you agree or disagree with what what I think is that a lot of Republicans, particularly of the base, uh, consider a lot of what Republicans in Congress to be advocating for and the legislation that they're putting forward to be much more left of center of where they are, whereas the progressive base seems to only demand that they shift even more to the left. I mean, an example I can give is I was watching The Five on, on Fox um, after Roe versus Wade was overturned. Speaking of that, be sure to check out our episode uh, right after the overturning of Roe and Casey from the Supreme Court after you listen to this episode. But sticking on to the matter of how bipartisanship could come after this new Supreme Court ruling was that, and this is from Jessica Tarlov, who was, who is the, you know, she was the Democrat on the panel on that, on this particular episode. And she stated that, why don't we have a national compromise where in Republican states, there's a 15-week limit, but Democrats can keep their very liberal abortion laws. And when I heard that, I was taken aback. Like, that's not compromise on both sides. You're telling the right, they have to become more left-wing on abortion issues, whereas the left can keep their very, very on-demand abortion laws. That's forcing one side to subjugate their views in favor of another, whether that's you know the left doing it to the right or the right doing it to the left. That's not the definition of compromise. And to have that free spirited conversation is much needed in this country that is bitterly divided. And we need to find that. And I think Tulsi Gabbard represents an avenue to do that in how she went on. Uh, she went to CPAC and she gave a speech about unity and bipartisanship uh, in an otherwise very, very red meet very hardcore conservative base and, and uh, audience. So I commend her for her bravery. Of course, not everybody is up to the task for that, but she's really stepped up and she's doing what she believes is right. Not to turn it to you, Alyssa, do you think that she accurately reflects the attitudes of people in Hawaii? Is she a voice for Hawaiians, particularly of the second district that she represented, or do you think she's becoming more and more of a mainland political analyst or political lens to see the issues we're facing today? I think Tulsi is a great representation of the culture we have in Hawaii. Um, she mentioned uh, a couple of times in public too, but 
we call it the aloha spirit, showing respect and compassion, regardless of your beliefs or your race or your um, your political beliefs. And I think she represents Hawaii well in that sense. And I'm sure John will talk about it better, but I think Hawaii people tend to be more populist and anti-establishment. And I think Tulsi also represents that very well. But yeah, um, what you said earlier, I definitely agree with. It seems that the left is going farther and farther to the left and the right is having to quote unquote compromise. But I feel like at a certain point, we're just completely giving up on our values. And like recently I saw a meme saying, oh, conservatives 10, 10 years from now will be saying, no, drag shows shouldn't be publicly funded. And it just seems like conservatives are constantly just trying to support what Democrats supported like a decade ago. And you just keep seeing this leftward shift from the Democratic Party. And sure, we can keep compromising from our side. But also, if the left doesn't want to compromise and you know shift, shift their, their views closer to the center, I think we're going the right, the wrong direction. Yeah, that's absolutely a great way to characterize it is that the Overton window has been moving left uh, for a very, very long time, especially on social matters. And that's, I think, what a lot of uh, maybe younger voters, and you can give your uh, perspective, Alyssa, is that especially from my perspective and my view, uh, social issues tend to lead the debate in what we would now call the culture war issues because they're what we see in our day-to-day lives. I mean, we're the ones who see on our social media, you know, the whole debate about the pronouns, about what's going on in education and what's going on in schools, because we're living through that. I mean, we're all college students. So we're seeing the effects of these policies, whereas older voters, I would say, tend to characterize the economy as the number one issue because they're, they have to balance their budgets and they need to figure out how to spend their money and where how they can put food on the table and keep a roof over their head, which don't get me wrong, are very important issues. But at a younger age, those are typically the issues that aren't your priority. I think a lot of younger voters, and you saw this as well after the overturning of Roe versus Wade in the Dobbs case, is a lot of students holding signs from the Students for Life organization that we are the post-Roe generation. And to have a lot of younger people there at all those events symbolizes that difference in what are the issues that are gaining the attention of younger voters and what our our political leaders can do, even though they're much older than we are, there are age restrictions for a reason and who can run for president, who can run for Congress, but not to make sure that they lose sight of younger voters. I mean, we're tend to be characterized as very, very small minorities on any college campus. That's why um, this podcast exists and why I wanted to make this a reality is to be a voice for those quiet conservatives and for those who, even though they're they're fighting the good fight on other college campuses, but it's of course very hard to gain leeway in such a difficult political environment for them. But do you agree with that assertion that younger voters focus more on their culture war and that older voters on the economy and how that impacts how we view compromise? Yeah, I can definitely see where you're coming from. And I think most recently an issue that a lot of young people were paying attention to was the mask mandates. 
because now even people who are left leaning are sick of the COVID restrictions, especially on campus. I mean, at Georgetown, we still have to wear a mask in class. And it's already July of 2022. So yeah, I think that uh, young people tend to focus more on those social issues. But overall, it seems that voters consistently believe the economy is their biggest issue. And the Democrats have been failing at that. So very excited to see the elections. Yeah, it's a matter of how big the red wave is going to be or what are the margins going to be? That's the question on everybody's mind. But just to wrap up this topic of the the the, the question of bipartisanship in the U.S., I would actually bring in a little bit of physics here, not something you normally see with a lot of political debates, but I would talk about Newton's third law of motion, which is for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And I think this is very important when looking at the political environment we see today in the United States, especially looking, taking case study of conservatives, because we've seen our political leaders make compromises with the left and the left finding a lot of loopholes to get out of those compromises and keep very liberal policies in place. But now the media is definitely portraying conservatives who are saying, hold on, you know, we're compromising on all these major issues. The left isn't budging. They're continuing to move leftwards on all these issues. We need to stand our ground to, to have a backbone and to say no more, enough is enough. And now they're characterizing people like uh, Congresswoman Myra Flores, I bring this up a little bit later uh, with John and, and how this represents a huge shift in the electorate. But the New York Times called her a, quote, far right Latina when she's just saying she's pro God, pro family and pro America. And the fact that this is now being characterized as far right is, again, another testament to the polarization in our country and what what the left interprets as center and what the right interprets of center. But just to wrap up our conversation uh, about Tulsi Gabbard, I don't want to detract too far from the main topic, uh, but she does represent a lot of things to a lot of different people. And I would definitely characterize her as a left-wing populist, as I mentioned. Uh, Do you think that the progressive turn in the Democratic Party means that anybody who holds remotely conservative views on social issues uh, are still welcomed? In the party, I mean, we see somebody like Dan Sanchez in Texas 34th who ran against Myra Flores. He was a pro-life Democrat. Do you see people like that having a future in the Democratic Party? Or do you think we'll have more Tulsi's in the future that are saying I was pro-life or I'm, you know, against transgender women in sports or I'm against indoctrination in education gradually be gravitated out of the Democratic Party? Yeah, I think that's an accurate classification. I would also say she's a left-wing populist. And I think it shows that if you hold a remotely conservative view, you will be excluded from the, the Democratic Party because you see people like Tulsi not giving given a platform and consistently slandered by the left. And then you see some Democrats that used to be more moderate suddenly becoming much farther to the left. Like I would say people like Andrew Yang and Buttigieg was were more moderate in 2020. And suddenly you see this shift to the left. And if you can't keep up with that, then you will be excluded from the party, which which is sad, but true. 
Yeah, it is unfortunate. And uh, hopefully we find a solution to the bipartisan uh, crisis that we're having and that we are able to live together as Americans and, and share common values. And what's increasingly looking like two separate countries, you know, going to Texas is very different than going to than being in Washington, D.C. Uh, and I'm sure Hawaii is very different too, like Nebraska or Iowa. So these uh, differences in, in, in how our, I would say our culture is, is gravitating and, and how it's moving is definitely something to keep an eye on. But thank you so much, Alyssa, for coming on to the podcast. You're welcome anytime and enjoy the rest of your summer. Thank you, Ian. You too. And now I'm thrilled to welcome John Vieira to the show. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for having me, Ian. I'm very excited to have our conversation about your home state of Hawaii. And to get things started, uh, Hawaii's entire delegation to the federal government and Congress uh, is Democratic. Would you say that Hawaii Democrats are any different to those that you see on the mainland from California, New York, et cetera? Yeah, I think there definitely is a difference between mainland and Hawaii Democrats. And I think the biggest the biggest difference, I would say, is the types of issues that dominate the discussion. Um, in the mainland, at the you know national democratic level, a lot of the discussion, at least in recent years, has focused on many social justice issues, um, whether it come to uh, race relations, um, women's rights, things like that, which are definitely talked about in Hawaii, but I think the way the discussion is shaped is a little different. Um, I think discussions about hot button issues with mainland Democrats um, is a lot more heated <laughs> and a lot more um, polarizing than it is in Hawaii. Um, and I think if you, a good reason is because, you know, you look at what people in Hawaii want. What do Hawaii Democratic voters want? They want a good standard of living. They want their kids to have a good education. They want to be able to afford to live in paradise with their family and their friends with a good job, right? You know, racism isn't that big of an issue in Hawaii. Not that it doesn't exist, but if you look at the cultural diversity that's present, um, it's not the same as the U.S. mainland. Um, So naturally, uh, people are less focused on hot button rhetoric um, and more focused about, you know, cost of living, which is what dominates a lot of the democratic discussion in the state. I think that's the greatest difference. Um, Not that it's good or bad necessarily either way, but the discussions are different at the mainland national democratic level and the Hawaii state level. Yeah, it's always been a fascination of wine, especially knowing the well, some of the differences between, you know, Alaska Republicans and mainland Republicans. It's yeah. a similar dynamic given uh, that, you know, it's the lower 48. And then the, I saw in a, I don't know if anybody out there knows Studio C, but they have a, a like a comedy skit about international relations. And Canada asks about the two adopted ones uh, in quotes referring to Alaska and Hawaii. Um, and so it's always interesting to see how those two states compare uh, to the rest of the country, given that they're not connected by land. And if I may, if I can add something on top of that, too, um, you know, a lot of Hawaii residents, not the majority, but a lot of Hawaii residents 
don't even don't even really see themselves as completely part of the United States, um, especially if you consider a lot of the old timers pre-1959 uh, where Hawaii wasn't a state, you know, without Internet, without rapid air travel. You know, it's hard to make that connection in many of the older generations to some degree. But yeah, I just wanted to interject real quick. <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. And uh, Hawaii has not been a state for that long relative to the rest of the country. I mean, yeah. I was born in New Jersey, which has been, you know, the third state uh, in the union. So there's definitely much, probably less affinity uh, for the U.S. and Hawaii than uh, a lot of other states, it's, especially given it was state number 50. <laughs> yeah. But um, keeping on this track of uh, Hawaii Democrats is that there's a competitive primary for governor in your state uh, coming up for this midterm elections. You have the incumbent lieutenant governor, Josh Green, going up going up against an incumbent representative in the second district, District Kai Kahele, and also the former first lady of Hawaii, um, Vicky Cayetano, please correct me if I'm pronouncing those names incorrectly, are all in the race to succeed uh, your current go- incumbent governor, Ige. What, in your view, is happening on the ground and who's most likely to come out on top? Well, first of all, you got the names all right. So that's good. <laughs> um, don't worry about that. Um, and in terms of your question, you know, what's happening on the ground and who is most likely to come out on top? Um, let me answer that second one first. And again, this is not an opinion that comes from a political professional analyst. This is just, you know, what I see from um, aunties and uncles when I hear from people in the grocery store, from friends, family, right? And it really looks like Lieutenant Governor Josh Green is going to come out on top um, in terms of the Democratic side of candidates. And I think the reason for that is simply name and party exposure. Um, If you look back to when COVID first started, you know, Lieutenant Governor Josh Green is a physician, right? So Dr. Josh Green uh, really dominated kind of the nexus of politics and medicine, right? He was kind of the guy. And there was even some controversy between him and the governor for who was really kind of leading the narrative in terms of COVID. Uh, So Dr. Josh Green really made a lot of headway as the man during the pandemic. And with that being said, I think we also need to look at the other two candidates as to why they're not as far ahead in the polls as Dr. Josh Green. Um, And if you look at Vicky Cayetano, um, you know, the name Cayetano is associated with her husband, Ben Cayetano, right, former former governor. And I feel like there are a lot of people who aren't very trusting <laughs> in former <laughs> officials, right, in, in, in that name. There, there's a lot of skepticism of ties to how close to her husband is she going to be in her policy, right? Does, does this mean we're going to go back to um, policies that were seen in the past, right? So there's some concern there. And I think that's why she's not the front runner. And if you go to Kahele, well, I think he's an energetic, progressive, young guy. I, I, you know, he's, he's young and he's really creating a path forward, uh, representing a lot of people in the state. But the problem is a lot of Democrats now, a lot of Democrats aren't happy with his term in Congress, right? I mean, a lot. I from what I gather, a lot of people expected Kahele to be this 
young guy who is going to build seniority in Congress for the state of Hawaii, right? So that years from now, he would have a voice to truly represent and express our interests. And I know that a lot of Democrats weren't very happy about the fact that he stopped after one term, that he's now going to run for governor, right? So again, this none of this is um, a political analyst statistical perspective, but that is kind of the, the narrative, the perspectives that people see of these candidates. Yeah, I think that's really important, uh, especially having talking to people on the ground is the most important way, I think, of measuring who's going to win an election more so than the polls and what analysts you know, think is think is going to happen rather than what actually happens. Yeah. We're talking about um, Vicky Cayetano and the name and, and her husband uh, being former governor. And that seems to be a, more of a trend in Hawaii is that you see a lot of family uh, politics run, especially in the Hawaii uh, Democratic Party. Uh, but now flipping over to the Republican side, there's a candidate uh, who's actually a martial arts fighter. I did some research on him. His name is BJ Penn. And in his issue statement in his video, introductory video, he talked about putting an end to that swamp and fighting against the family rule that, that's going on in Hawaii. Would you equate it to the D.C. swamp? And why do you think that politics in Hawaii has become so family driven? Well, I think it would be similar to the D.C. swamp. Um, now, keep in mind, B.J. Penn is the martial arts fighter. He's he's running on a very aggressive fight for the people campaign. Um, so I think I wouldn't. I would be wary of exaggerating the, the situation. But but with that being said, I think he's exactly correct about the familial ties. Right. Um, and I think if, if you ask why, why, why do you think that is? I think it goes back to. Um, the cultural demographics of Hawaii. Um, if you look at it, there's a really strong Asian cultural influence. And if you tie that back to a lot of Asian cultures, which are very familial based, um, now consider the fact that the Japanese really dominate business and politics. Um, I mean, the democratic revolution in Hawaii in the 50s was dominated by Japanese Democrats, right? And the cultural ties, the cultural um, ways that come from a diverse um, culture in Hawaii kind of shape that familial, those familial ties. Native Hawaiians, Asian cultures, it all comes together. Um, now, equating it to the D.C. swamp, I think it's similar, um, but I, I, I still think the D.C. swamp is one step above that, right? I mean, <laughs> I think what you see in Hawaii is you see a good thing that there's strong familial ties. Um, because 99% of the time, it's it makes a positive impact, right? When you treat people who may not even be related as family. Um, but all it takes is that small percentage where our former police chief is now in prison, right? We have, we have former state legislators who are <laughs> found to be corrupt, right? So that's exactly what can happen when you have um, these familial ties combined with a single party rule, um, a lack of accountability, then you can start to see these cases happen. Yeah, you, you touch upon the lack of accountability. And I mean, Republicans have a very limited voice in your state legislature. I mean, there's only five members in total, and that includes one in the state Senate out of 25. 
and four out of 51 state representatives. You know, and as you said, it looks very much like a one party rule in, in the state. And it's it, it, I bet it certainly must be frustrating to be in the Hawaii GOP and put forward a policy platform every you know, every year, every two years, every four years and never see too much improvement. But why do you think that is? Why do Republicans seem to struggle a lot at the state level in Hawaii? Well, first of all, I think it's interesting to note that 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 one Republican in the Senate is also the minority leader, if you think about it. Uh, so I guess it comes with some perks. <laughs> but no, it's in, in all seriousness, uh, you know, why do Republicans uh, fare poorly in the state? Um, I think it, it's just been so ingrained, the Democratic control. I mean, if we go back, look at history, um, you know, we look at the early 20th century in the state of Hawaii, um, it was dominated by large plantations. If you recall, sugar and pineapple were major exports in the state. Um, And this is uh, after the illegal overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy, right? So what you have is large corporations who own the sugar plantations, who own the pineapple plantations, really control politics. And what party were they? They were Republican. Right. So and and then in the 1950s, you see the Democratic Revolution, where all of a sudden Democrats took over the state and they still have control. Um, And my point being is that there's, I think, a collective memory in many instances of what the Republican Party represents in Hawaii. Um, But also you have to combine that with we've been Democrat for so long. I mean, mid 50s is when (laughs) we first truly started taking a a movement towards the Democratic Party, and we've hung on ever since. Another reason, I think, is just as mainland Democrats are different from Hawaii Democrats, mainland Republicans are different from Hawaii Republicans, right? Um, I think one of the major uh, hurdles to overcome is that the GOP at the national level, you know, when we think of strong levels of individualism, right, of individual achievement and work ethic. Well, yes, I think those are useful values, but it doesn't, it's not exactly 100% compatible with Hawaii's culture. Um, You can also look at an appreciation of the Second Amendment, which I think, thank goodness we have a Second Amendment, first of all. But I think culturally in Hawaii, it's not as big of a priority as it is in the mainland US. Um, I could go on for many examples. But the main point is this. The main point is that Hawaii, being an isolated, both geographically and culturally, being an isolated entity, um, it's hard for Republicans to ride on the coattails of the national GOP, right? They kind of have to form their own avenues forward, kind of form their own Republican identity in Hawaii. And I think that's one of the major uh, obstacles. Yeah, and that's uh, certainly something that Republicans will probably be very uh, inquisitive moving forward and trying to see if they can make any inroads in a lot of states that they currently aren't strong in. uh, And that's very important if uh, they want to have any future say in what goes on in Hawaii politics, as many other states, even uh, in the mainland. But going off of the previous question and how Republicans do probably at the state level, you talked about how it, the state and Nash and uh, mainland GOP are very different in Hawaii versus the remaining uh, U.S. However, former President Trump did 
pretty well relative to other Republicans. He outperformed down ballot Republicans, which wasn't the case in the mainland. Like take my home state of Texas now and uh, like Senator John Cornyn won Texas by 9%. And in the House level, the GOP won the generic ballot by over 10 points. Yet President Trump only won Texas by six points. Uh, President Trump in Hawaii received 34% of the vote in the 2020 election. Yet state house Republicans only won 29% of the vote. And out of any state in the union, Hawaii was the most right trending state, according to U.S. election data, that it trended 5%, 5.1% to the right, which is more than Florida. I know a lot of people like to talk about Florida's rightward shift, but Hawaii trended more Republican than Florida, uh, the most in, out of any state in the right. And is there an explanation that you feel uh, explains President Trump's success, relative success? I mean, he still lost Hawaii by a very strong margin, but he did much better than the average Hawaii Republican. Well, I want to start off by saying that politics aside, that 5.1% trend that you talk about is a good thing. Um, because whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, it doesn't matter. We're seeing a balancing right now, at least the beginnings of a balancing. And I think that should be a good sign for everyone, politics aside. Um, now, when we talk about the explanation of you know, why did President Trump do better than the average Hawaii Republican? I think it comes down to a few things. Um, in the recent years, we've seen, again, I bring up this idea of exposure of corruption, right? Um, and I, I reiterate the fact that our former police chief is a criminal, right? And, it, and when we see state legislators who are found on corruption charges, right? It's, it all happened in recent in the recent time. Um, and, and that's perfect timing for a Republican shift because what you see is you see people are becoming increasingly skeptical of a one-party dominated rule. And I think above all else, this is what motivated voters to vote for Trump above of the Hawaii, Hawaii GOP. Um, it's this idea that, you know, Trump came in and he talked about the swamp, right? Being an outsider, he talked about, look what the status quo has gotten you for so long in the country. And I think that resonated with quite a few um, local voters because they're seeing the parallels now to the state of Hawaii, where our education system is still much worse than it should be, right? Political accountability is much worse than it should be. Cost of living is high. And a lot of people are sitting back and they're saying, oh my goodness, <laughs> it's been this way for so long and we keep voting in the same people. So I think that's why Trump really um, resonated to some degree with local voters. And, and to contrast that, I, I wouldn't say, you know, his stance on immigration motivated many voters, right? I don't, in Hawaii, I really don't think that was a key factor. I think it comes down to that the swamp, the accountability, um, and, and really holding a one-party rule um, <laughs> under a close magnifying glass, right? Um, and I think I'd, I'd finish off an answer to this question by, by also saying that Hawaii voters... I think traditionally so in, and socially are slightly conservative. Um, many voters are. Uh, 
uh, voters don't want to talk about critical race theory that you hear on on cable news. Um, you know, they they don't want to talk about um, a lot of social activism on the news. Again, it comes back to what are we concerned about? We're concerned about cost of living, good education, a good job, so we can live with our f- and spend time with our family and friends in paradise, right? Live in the spirit of aloha in paradise. So I think, I think all of those come together to form at least an amateur explanation of why he did better um, than the Hawaii Republican. Yeah, and that was a big uh, part of his campaign, especially in 2016. But ironically, it was 2020 that he made those inroads. Maybe uh, yeah. I'd say a lot of it could be, uh, and you can push back on this, is that he proved himself maybe a little bit in the first four in his four-year presidency that he actually was taking steps to fight the swamp. And so many Hawaii voters uh, rewarded him and saying, we're going to vote for you instead of Joe Biden, who many could argue was the epitome of the swamp. I mean, he was in the Senate for it for very long and, and having him come back to now be president, uh, I think definitely shows a, a move back and towards the status quo Washington uh, rule that we've seen for many, many years, especially before um, Trump. And I just want to talk about now the lieutenant gov- former Lieutenant Governor Republican who was, uh, who's now running again for governor. I believe it's a second campaign is, um, Duke Iona. And he, and I did some research about him as well. When I looked at BJ Penn and we talked a little bit about him and I don't mean to be biased, but I saw he was Portuguese American. He has Portuguese ancestry and me being a Portuguese American made me warm up a little bit more and and support him a little bit in that regard to see if there's any cultural uh, link, but I don't like to judge people based on their cultural links. I mean, a lot of uh, people could say the same about other minority politicians and that doesn't always pan out, but he seems to be somebody that Hawaii voters reject in the sense of running again, epitomizing that establishment, that one party rule, that familial rule, that you keep seeing the same names and faces over and over again. Is that seemingly going to hurt his campaign again this year or given the national environment, at least in the mainland, is turning very much against President Biden and the Democrats that that necessarily people will turn a blind eye and still vote Republican, even though they will they might have issues with that aspect of him. Yeah, yeah. Let me very briefly, um, just one quick follow up on on the last subject. I think what you're saying is true, um, but I don't think the conclusion we can draw is that Hawaii Republicans massively support Trump as a personality. I think we should be very careful of coming to that conclusion. But what you're saying is right. If we look at the trends, um, we do see some materialization of that, right? And now to, um, I don't want to get off topic, but what to, what to what you're asking. I think, yes, it could affect his campaign. The fact that, you know, the, when we talk about the familial ties, the fact that he was lieutenant governor before. And, you know, Duke Iona um, is a name that has been around for a while. He was a judge before as well. Um, the short answer is no, I don't think it'll significantly affect his campaign. And the reason is because whereas he might be considered a part of the establishment to some degree, you compare that to the some of the Democratic candidates and the, and, and the difference is clear, you know. So I don't think it will massively affect where he's going. And I think if we look at the trend of Republicans, I think, if anything, he's the best chance they got. Right. I mean, 
no, I don't want to take away from BJ Penn or Heidi Suniyoshi, uh, who's also running. But in terms of what we've seen in, for support wise, I think Duke Iona is the best chance that Republicans have um, to actually take the governor's office once again as, as Republicans. Um, so, yes, it will affect it. But I think the other candidates on the other side also have very deep ties. Yeah, it's fair. I mean, a lot of it will be relative, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> bringing in a lieutenant governor who's been an incumbent versus uh, Iona, who's been lieutenant governor previously. I believe it was 2004 that he left office. And that, you know, you've touched upon it uh, as we've been speaking now, but do you see any path forward for Republicans or any conservative to make further inroads in Hawaii? And what kind of conservative candidate would do the best? Well, first of all, I think there very much is a path forward. Um, I know some of the newer leadership of the Hawaii GOP is part of the younger are part of the younger generation, right? Um, so I think what we see is Hawaii voters, from what I can gather, do not want the typical older generation Republican. You know, uh, let's say a Republican like Chuck Grassley would not fare very well in the state of Hawaii, right? But a young Republican, someone who says, whoa, 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 no, I don't fit in the stereotypes of what the Republicans have been painted as, right? I'm a young local guy or gal, right? Works and lives in the state of Hawaii and says, no, I'm, I'm tired of the democratic monopoly on politics. If a, if a candidate were to come up and say those words, I think they would get support. Um, and a good example, I think, is, are you familiar with Andrea Tupolo by any chance? Have you heard of the name? I haven't. Oh, I, I wouldn't expect you to. But anyway, she sits on the city council and she represents um, the west side of the island, which is traditionally... Um, Far, in contrast to the urban Honolulu, the West Side is very different demographically. Um, and, you know, she's she's on the city council and she represents the voices of people, but she doesn't do it as a Republican per se, you know, even though she very much aligns with the views. But she's a younger woman in terms of politicians relative. Right. And she's going in and she's doing community work at the grassroots level. And she's providing an alternative perspective. And I think she's seen quite a bit of success, you know, um, not broad success just yet. But I think that's the kind of candidate that people want to see is, is they want to see that alternate perspective from a, a younger, relatively speaking, person um, who can not talk about MAGA this, MAGA that, right? Which the stereotype is for a lot of Republicans, right? But who comes forward and says, I have an alternate perspective. I want to create greater accountability. And I believe that the way we've been doing things, um, while it has made some progress, is not the most efficient. I think by looking at it from this set of values that connects to what the people of Hawaii want, we can move forward. And I think if a candidate came up and said that, they would do well. Yeah, what you're saying actually reminds me a lot of the uh, Glenn Youngkin kind of messaging and campaigning in Virginia. It's like, I'm a new face to politics 
And uh, from what you described, I think he very much fits that mold. And I think a lot of Republicans are trying to emulate his playbook across the country by saying, you know, appealing to that anti-establishment feeling of the grassroots and conservative base, if I'm speaking about the mainland. I, w- I would characterize the Republican Party party as being much more diverse in, in who votes Republican. I mean, uh, I'm trying to keep uh, in touch with a lot of what's going on in South Texas with the Hispanic vote. And we saw Myra Flores win in that special election in South Texas in the 34th district. And she, I think, ran on a similar message of, you know, we're socially conservative, pro-God, pro-family. I, I bet it's diff- much different in Hawaii, but it's a similar kind of, you know, grassroots, local, like I'm representing you, not the party messaging. And do you think that now that Republicans are making inroads with Hispanic voters, that Hawaiian voters could be next in, in the line of Republicans making massive gains? Because we're seeing, uh, you know, I think President Trump go to near 40 percent of the Hispanic vote and potentially Republicans winning or coming very, very close to winning the Hispanic vote this year. Yeah, I think so. And I think so because from what I see, Republicans at the state level are starting to realize that what works at the GOP, at the national level, the typical mold of what it means to be a Republican, perhaps needs to be modified and tweaked and brought down to the state level. And again, this comes back to the idea that Hawaii Republicans, they, they proudly run under the Republican name. But if you compare it to a lot of Republicans in Florida, right, for example, or Texas, uh, it, it's different. But I think that's optimistic for at least if we're talking from the Republican Party's perspective, because once you integrate local values with and connect that to the general platform that the Republican Party has, I think that's where you make inroads. I think it's why you've seen at least the Native Hawaiian vote and the, and the local Hawaii support for Republicans start to increase recently is because, you know, to, to be frank here, the latest Republicans aren't a white guy from the mainland, right? Which as much as identity politics is not a good thing, I think Hawaii people are tired of white guys from the mainland telling them what to do, if I'm going to be honest here, right? Um, And I don't mean that in any derogatory way. I'm just trying to say that once we include local people in the values and the vision that the mainland GOP has, that's why we're seeing some progress, I think, if we look from a Republican Party perspective. Yeah, putting like a local face to a more broader uh, a broader cause. And I think that you're absolutely right. And you don't want like, uh, being me being a Texan now is I don't want somebody from California coming in and telling me how Texas should run things. Or I think you bring up excellent points with the bringing up local leaders and emphasizing that, which, uh, throughout history, Republicans have largely ignored. They've looked at the federal government and I would say state governorships, uh, and being like, that's how we're going to govern. And now with this new, I would say even like bringing in the culture war issues, you're seeing now Republicans and conservatives care about all the down ballot uh, yeah. issues. Yes. And when I went to go look at the Republican primary ballot in Texas, I looked, I, I researched every candidate from top to bottom because you cannot let those down ballot issues slide because that's local races is how you change the, the, the culture and how you change the environment. You create you know, strong conservative local governments, and that'll eventually 
go up. You have strong state government uh, leadership, regardless if you're Republican or Democrat, I think both apply. It's it's going to have the knock-on effect that in, you know, it may take a while, it may take 10 years or so, 10, 15, 20 years, but eventually you'll see stronger and, and better, more competent leaders come to the forefront. And so I absolutely agree with you that that young councilwoman, that younger councilwoman in uh in Hawaii is definitely, I think, where the future of the Republican Party lies, not just in Hawaii, but the rest of the country. And Hawaii, of course, is a state I find very fascinating and keeping an eye out for because it's it's operates so differently from the rest of the country. And, you know, you had Barack Obama's president, right, uh, representing Hawaii, but you also have people like Tulsi Gabbard, right, who have been co- controversial and uh, I've discussed, you know, with Alyssa earlier on in this episode. So, I mean, uh, it's it's really, I think, a diverse state, and uh, hopefully, it'll continue improving. But yeah, keep a uh, keep up the great work in Hawaii. Thank you so much for coming on, John, and enjoy the rest of your summer. All right, Ian. Thank you very much for having me. And before we wrap up, be sure to follow the podcast on Spotify or whichever podcast uh, streaming platform of your choice, and please rate it five stars to show your support. And we will continue producing this great content. Remember to also follow the Georgetown University College Republicans on Instagram at Georgetown Republicans and on Twitter at Georgetown CR so you don't miss another episode. Just a reminder that all views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the organization.